You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 100. A huge part of me cannot believe that we've made it to 100, and yet, here we are. I would like to start off today by thanking everyone who supports the podcast on Patreon, a group of people joined by Dave and Ben this week, and to anybody who has donated to the show over the last two and a half years, and everybody who has shared an episode on their social networks or in real life or in any way, shape, or form, anybody who has reached out to me via email or any other means to comment, correct, or congratulate me on the podcast. And finally... To everybody out there who's listening right now, yes, you, thank you. It's been a long journey so far, and we probably aren't even halfway there yet. About a month ago, I reached out to people on Facebook, Twitter, and Patreon to try and round up some questions or topics that listeners would like me to discuss here on this 100th episode, and that's resulted in a list of about six topics to be discussed today. They are sort of all over the place, but I think they should be interesting. If you have any questions or topics you think I should discuss on the show, feel free to hit me up at any time and in any way. Believe it or not, there are things I forget about all the time. And if listeners provide a steady stream of questions, I'll do episodes like this more often. One final thing before we jump in. To listeners Joe and Michael, who both asks about weapons and equipment and how they had evolved up to 1916 and 1917. I will not be hitting that topic today, and instead have pushed it to a larger discussion that should occur early next year-ish. Our first topic comes from listener Scott, who asks about the medical corps. There were a lot of soldiers who needed them, so how were they providing care? The medical corps were definitely important for all of the armies during the First World War. There were critical concepts, though, that modern medicine has at its disposal, that simply did not exist in 1914, like penicillin, 
which would only come to be used after the war, and blood transfusions, which would only start to be used right at the end of the war. Both of these are very important to modern medicine. On the Western Front, the British had a highly organized system to get wounded men off the battlefield and then get them various levels of care based on their needs. The first stop for any wounded soldier was the regimental aid post, which was usually just a tent or a dugout near the front line, where a medic was able to provide very basic levels of medical attention. If the wound was not at all serious, the man would be sent back to the front. But if it was more serious, the job of the aid post was to get the man stabilized and ready for transport to the next step, the casualty clearing station. These were designed to move with the troops, but on the Western Front, they rarely had to move because the lines didn't move. While, this, while the stalemate happening on the Western Front was a problem for the armies, it made the job of the casualty clearing stations much easier because they could be sort of in the same place all the time. And the goal of these stations was to perform surgeries as required, like amputations, and then to either stabilize the wounded and let them heal up, which usually that wouldn't take more than a month, or if it was going to take longer than that, they would stabilize them again and get them ready for transport to stationary hospitals uh, far behind the lines. These hospitals were usually, usually had uh, larger holding capacities and better tools to diagnose and correct more complicated uh, issues. This included equipment like x-ray machines, which I personally didn't realize existed over 100 years ago, but apparently they did. The majority of wounded men who would recover and go back to their units generally either stopped at the casualty clearing station or the hospital. There were some that would go across the channel to Britain and recover from there and then come back, but that was not the norm. Most of the men who were sent across the channel were for more specialized care in hospitals at home were out of the war for good. As soldiers moved higher up this chain from the front to the hospitals, generally their chances of survival increased. This was both because the care got generally better, but also simply because if they had survived long enough to get beyond the regimental aid post, then they couldn't have been in the worst of shape or they probably would have died before they got there. For medics, doctors, and nurses, many of which were female and were placed as close to the front as the casualty clearing stations, just, a, just the sheer number of wounded who would pass through all of the steps in the chain created this sense of mind-numbing carnage. When reading their accounts, you will often see them just sort of stop talking about it, or talking about the worst wounds and the worst situations in the most blasé tone. Here is Medical Officer Charles McCarron of the 10th Battalion, Northumberland Fusiliers, 23rd Division. Quote, Death is a very dreadful thing to those who are not flung into slaughter. It will take months for me to gain a truer perspective. When the dead lie all around you, and the men next to you or oneself may puff out, death becomes a very unimportant incident. It is not callousness, but just too much knowledge. Like other things, man has ignored death and treated it as something to talk about with pale cheek and bated breath. When one gets death on every side, the reaction is sudden. Two chaps go out for water and one returns. Says a pal to him, well, where's Bill? A bloody whiz-bang took his bloody head off. May not appear sympathetic, but it is the only way of looking at the thing and remaining sane. 
You may be certain, however, that the same man would carry Bill 10 miles if there was any chance of fixing his head on again. End quote. This type of attitude would be present in any war. But as we discussed back in the Verdun episodes, the type of helplessness that men felt under fire from artillery and the concern for the fact that they could be obliterated at any instant was coupled with the type of mutilation that artillery shells would cause to the human body. These were not nice, clean wounds. When artillery shells exploded into shrapnel and hit a human body, they were just bludgeoning their way through it. Then, of course, there were the gas victims, some blind, some barely able to breathe, just the worst type of suffering you can imagine. Another thing that you see when reading the first-hand accounts of these doctors, nurses, uh, medics, is just like complete and total exhaustion. Their job seemed to have never stopped. There was no gaining or winning in what they were trying to do because the flow of wounded men just kept coming. And that sort of pervades all of these first-person perspectives. If you want to know more about the medical situation during the war, but don't want to fall too deep into like the endless morass of academic papers, I suggest picking up a copy of Wounded by Emily Mayhew. It's a great overview book that's not too long or not too dry, and has a really good amount of first-person uh, first accounts. Next on the docket is Spain. Listener Antonio asks simply what was happening in Spain during the war. Spain was neutral, and it had made the decision to be neutral very early on. The country as a whole was just in no position to enter a large military conflict, because for several decades, and really even for over a century, it had been a declining empire, even more than the other empires in the war, like the Ottomans or Austria-Hungary. Before 1914, what had once been a huge Spanish empire had shrunk down to just the Iberian Peninsula and a small area of Morocco. The Spanish military was less potent than many much smaller Balkan countries and had not acquitted itself well in the Spanish-American War or the Moroccan Crisis of the early 20th century. Even though the military was not very potent, Spain was still dumping a lot of money into it, and this was due primarily to the power and numbers of the officer corps. They were highly influential, and the entire organization was just very top-heavy, a lot of chiefs, not a lot of Indians. This would play a part in the war and after. Even if Spain would have wanted to enter the war, it would have been difficult to find a side that really wanted them. For the central powers, it was difficult to see how Spain could really assist them. Sure, it might have opened a small secondary front into France, but the Pyrenees were a serious obstacle. Also, the Spanish would have found themselves almost instantly blockaded by the British, causing huge problems for what would prove to be a very fragile economy and society. The British and French would have gotten even less from the Spanish entry into the war. The citizens of Spain were also split on who they supported in the war, with some supporting Germany and others France. This created a lot of friction that both sides sought to use to make sure that Spain stayed neutral, but also was not too much help to the other side. The Germans especially were adept at this by quickly finding their way into control of some of the largest Spanish newspapers, which let them sway public opinion during the war, which would become very important when, you know, the submarines started sinking ships. The Spanish government, while understanding that they would have to be neutral at the beginning, were still hoping that they could play a part in the war, as a mediator between the two sides, 
bringing them to the peace table, you know, being that guy in the middle. This would have went a long way to restoring some of the prestige that Spain had completely lost in the decades leading up to the war and made it, you know, would have made the country seem more powerful. Unfortunately, this would be a role played by the United States, and Spain would never be able to really play any real role in the peace talks. So that's why Spain became and stayed neutral. But what about how the war affected Spain? I find this topic and the discussion of how the war affected all of the neutral countries around Europe to be extremely fascinating. Even a quick survey of the available resource research points to huge consequences for all of the neutral countries of Europe, even though their armies stayed at home. For Spain, everything started off so well. There was a huge boom in the Spanish economy as they were able to increase their exports, as well as greatly decrease their imports because nobody wanted to ship them stuff, which made domestic businesses far more successful, especially when it came to finished goods. However, while this was initially quite good, it would quickly begin to cause inflation that would continue for the rest of the war. This would catastrophically reduce the purchasing power of normal Spanish citizens. This hardship would combine with an unsteady social situation before the war to create a nation that was anything but stable and already on the long road to the Spanish Civil War. The first problem was that the economic benefits of the war and the greatest hardships were not evenly spread around the country, with the economic benefits focused on urban industrial areas, while the hardships were felt, were felt most by those in rural areas. This then caused many rural individuals to move into these cities, a number that was pushed higher by the fact that migration out of Spain and into other countries like the United States was greatly decreased during the war years. Before the war, this movement had been something of a safety valve for rural population growth, this moving to other countries. But this had decreased by 75%, and many of these people found their way into urban areas to try and find work and food. Once these groups were in the cities and they did not magically find a panacea, they would slowly be organized into real movements for change. This movement would grow in power as the war progressed, especially after 1917 and the example set by the Russian Revolution. These groups would eventually be co-opted by the military before the end of the war and used to force the creation and acceptance of military juntas that would create enough instability to eventually lead to the Spanish Civil War. So overall, just to recap, the war crippled and eventually began the death spiral of Spain as they knew it in 1914, a country that was already poorly equipped as a society to handle the incredible stress put upon it from the war would just sort of fall apart eventually. This has just been a very quick overview of what was happening in Spain. And if you like this and you want a deeper dive into Spain during the war and into some of those other neutral countries that I mentioned earlier, I have two pretty lengthy episodes for Patreon supporters on the topic that I released a few months ago. Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy sometimes I just do not want to cook, and that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey chili and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. 
I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34 plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier. And really, I need both of those things. So head over to factormeals.com GW50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com GW50 to get 50% off. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Our next topic comes from listener Mark, who has always been very active on the podcast Facebook page, which is awesome. His question was about the Dominions and their contribution to the war so far. However, before I get there, I do have one very recent comment just a few days ago, of correction really, by Doris, who I think is from Australia, or at least one of Doris's Facebook messages ended by calling me mate, which seems like a dead giveaway that Doris is from Australia. Anyway, Doris is a new listener and just finished up the Gallipoli episodes and sent me a Facebook message that sort of puts me in my place and is the exact reason that I like getting corrections. I'm just going to read all of it because Doris does a good job of describing my, dis- my mistake in detail. She says, quote, In Australia and New Zealand, it is- Anzacs is generally used as a plural, as in Anzacs. The singular is mostly used as an adjective, as in Anzac troops, and rarely as a noun, as in they just landed at Anzac or he was an Anzac. Every other time, it is a plural noun, e.g. the Anzacs landed. The Anzacs fought at Lone Pine. The Anzacs are commemorated on Anzac Day. The Anzacs went on to fight on the Western Front. So basically the problem was is I'd been using Anzac and Anzacs and I was screwing it all up. And I find this comment very, very interesting uh, because I find it fascinating how throughout the years so many words that start as acronyms like Anzac as in capital A, capital N-Z-A-C, eventually find their way into common words that have plural, verb, adjective, noun forms, all that language stuff. Language is so weird, and it's cool to see uh, cultures sort of absorb them and make them part of their language. So Doris, and to the Australians and New Zealands everywhere, I apologize for using Anzacs or Anzac incorrectly. I will attempt to do better in the future. So back to the Dominions, which we will start with the Australians and New Zealanders again, which we've already covered quite well, I think, during the Gallipoli episodes. 
But after they had evacuated from Gallipoli, they made their way to Egypt for training, and then eventually to the Western Front, where they were even now reappearing in our narrative of the Somme, and they would be there to stay. The next group were the Canadians, which we have run into a few times. Let's see, they were at 2nd Ypres, where they played a role in keeping the uh, effects of the gas attack in check. They were at Neuve-Chapelle, and the Canadians will reappear in our story very soon, probably in about two weeks, when they make their debut on the Somme, to relieve none other than the Australian divisions, which we discussed last episode. It would be in their actions on the Somme that the Canadians would get their reputations as absolutely superb assault troops. This then led directly into what I don't think is controversial to say was the most important battle of the war, when they, for the Canadians anyway, when they made their assault on Vimy Ridge. Because of its importance, it would be at Vimy that the Canadians would erect their largest monument to the sacrifices made by their soldiers. Why this action was important was because it was the first time that all four Canadian divisions, the Canadian Corps, were making an attack together. And because of this, it seems to occupy the same place in Canadian culture as Gallipoli does in Australia and New Zealand. Sort of, the, you know, they were a new nation, becoming a nation, and they weren't just another British colony or dominion, like, they were Canadians now. They would also succeed in this attack, where many other attacks had failed before them. And success, while not essential to fixating it in Canadian history, certainly helps, certainly makes it a slightly more fun story. These three dominions were the most well-known, but there were two others in 1914, South Africa and Newfoundland. At this point, Newfoundland was not part of Canada, and was in fact a separate dominion with its own military units. They were present on the first day of the Somme, and attacked with the 29th Division against Beaumont Hamill. The South Africans were also present on the Somme. We talked about them uh, when discussing the action at Devil Wood and they would stay on the Western Front for the rest of the war. The reason you hear so little about them is that they would never have as many troops as the larger dominions, and I think they get lost in the shuffle a lot. Finally, I, I like to talk about India here, even though it wasn't technically a dominion during the war. It would only be after for a short amount of time before becoming an independent country. The whole situation with India is, is pretty weird. The biggest role for India, though, would be played in the Middle Eastern theater, where they would essentially run the war from the beginning all the way until the end. We will be discussing these actions quite a bit next year. Overall, the Dominions would play a critical role in the British being on the winning side during the war. By the end of the war, the Canadians and Australians would be the premier Allied troops on the Western Front. But all of this came with a cost. The New Zealanders would have the highest casualty rates of any British Dominion or Britain itself, with a bit over 1.5% of their 1914 population being killed during the war. The Australians would be close behind. However, there were also deeper scars that just numbers will never tell the tale of, like the rift that widened between the French and British Canadians over conscription in 1917, or the punishment of conscientious objectors in New Zealand and elsewhere. There are a lot of stories, both good and bad, around all the countries in World War I, and I hope to cover those of the Dominions and other European colonies more in future episodes. Our next question comes from Joshua, who asks, What was the United States doing up to this point? How much were they helping? 
This is a topic I don't maybe want to dive too deep into today, if only because it's going to be covered quite well next year. However, a bit of an overview never hurts. Now, I do want to say one thing about his question. He specifically used how much were they helping. Well, how much they were helping really depends on which side uh, you were on. Uh, The Germans and the Austria-Hungary definitely didn't feel like they were helping at all. They were actually hurting their cause. And since the United States is neutral, you sort of have to look at it from both sides. But the basic version is that from the beginning of the war, and most of the way through 1916, the United States had been seen as the great neutral. This was not just because it was a big country that was neutral and might possibly join the war, but because it was probably the only country with enough international standing and economic power to really have an effect on the war. It would interact with the belligerents almost constantly through the first two years of conflict in a variety of ways. For example, in 1914 and 1915, the United States heavily criticized Great Britain for its blockading policies that were breaking international laws by preventing the flow of humanitarian goods to the blockaded countries. These complaints would not end even after the United States entered the war, although they would also have a slight problem with something the Germans would do with submarines. This did not prevent the American government or American businesses from working with the warring countries in Europe, though, especially Britain and France. America would be a critical piece in supplying Britain, France, and other allied countries with raw and manufactured materials that were essential to sustaining the war effort. This made many businessmen in the United States quite a bit of money, and I I really doubt they were that sad about it. One thing that would remain constant through all the years of neutrality was the desire of the American government, the American people, and especially President Wilson to try and get a negotiated settlement from the war. This chaotic effort by Wilson especially would continue right up until the United States entered the war in 1917. This generally involved reaching out to the various governments several times in an effort to get them to agree to begin discussions about ending the war just Get everybody sat down at a table was impossible. This went through several different phases, with Wilson trying various ways of trying to get the countries to agree on something. (laughs) One big problem is that it was very difficult to get any country to make specific war aims public. So what precisely were were the countries fighting for? Like written down on a piece of paper, and what did they want out of a peace settlement? There were ideas and thoughts floating around every government in Europe, but nobody wanted to specifically state what their country's official stance was, because nobody wanted to be pinned down with a public statement that might be too lenient of the, on their enemies, or too harsh, and made, made it seem like they were the aggressors, they were the bad guys in this war. This would be the world that the United States existed in before 1917, and that year, the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare would finally kick the United States into the war, a country, a story that is long, slightly winding, and will be told in full probably next summer. Our final topic today is about what life was like on the home fronts around Europe. This question and topic was suggested by both Oscar and Andrew, so thank you. Now, the situation on the home fronts, especially for the Central Powers, would be extremely important during the last two years of the war. 
Many countries would have issues getting enough food to their citizens, with Britain beginning serious rationing in 1917 and other countries from almost the start of the war. Now, France would be mostly immune to these food shortages, but the other countries on the continent would be hit hard, really, really hard. In Germany and Austria-Hungary, rationing and shortages became a fact of life for nearly all members of society. In Germany, the winter of 1916 to 1917 was particularly challenging, and in what would become known as the turnip winter, food was extremely hard to find. This created tensions within these societies, because the cities where most of the war manufacturing was done was almost always the hardest hit by these shortages. The people in the cities then blamed the rural citizens, especially the farmers, for these problems. The producers didn't want to sell their food too cheaply, especially as demand continued to increase, and the cost of doing business in the form of equipment, seed, and labor went up along with it. This created an antagonism between the city dwellers and the rural families that would just get worse as time went on. The government attempted to step in to take care of this by enforcing price ceilings and other controls where possible, but this just made black market sales more appealing. In almost all major cities, soup kitchens were set up to try and get some minimum amount of food to the populace, and the number of these kitchens continued to increase. This did not prevent strict rationing from taking place. From the beginning of the war, and in 1916, 17, and 18, these rations would be cut, and then cut again, and then cut again, as supplies just could not meet demand. This was almost entirely caused by the British blockade, but maybe not in the ways that you would expect. You see, one big problem for Germany was that much of the fertilizer that German farms used before the war was imported. And these supplies were cut off after 1914, which meant that the farmland that the Germans did have was not nearly as productive as before the war, which just made the whole food situation even worse. There were many other mistakes that they made along the way, but those mostly just hastened the problem, and was probably, there was probably nothing that the Germans or Austrians could have really done to prevent some food shortages. However, the British blockade did make a good scapegoat for all of these problems, which is why they blamed it so often, and this was used by the governments heavily in propaganda during the war. This was a big contributing factor for the widespread public support of unrestricted submarine warfare in 1915 and in 1917, as the public just wanted the military to do something, do anything to hit back against the British. Austria-Hungary was feeling all of the same effects as Germany, but just amplified. This meant that there was less food, more movements on the black market, more societal antagonism. And on top of all this, for, for Austria-Hungary, was layered ethnic, cultural, and class differences. The German military thought that they had at least a partial solution to this problem, in the form of conquest in the East. And it was true that there was a lot of land that they occupied, some of it very capable farming land, but it just never quite panned out for them. Usually these areas were devastated by war, stripped of a good portion of their populations as people became refugees to escape the fighting, and then they were not exactly thrilled to help the Germans. There was very little motivation for the indigenous people to work hard, trying to make food that they knew the Germans were just going to take from them anyway. There were areas that were lucrative, like when the armies conquered Romania and took mountains of grain and livestock and raw materials and shipped it out on uh, trains 
but these were fleeting gains, and they could not be reproduced year after year. Even late in the war, after the Russian revolutions, and areas like Ukraine, the breadbasket of the Russian Empire, had achieved at least some kind of fleeting autonomy, they were never able to supply Germany and Austria-Hungary with the level of supplies that were hoped. So I know I've talked a lot about food shortages here, and that's just one sort of facet of what was happening for many of these countries. The food shortages um, just sort of amplified tensions within the society, which in Germany and Austria-Hungary caused societies to almost fall apart in 1918. Uh, A widespread strikes and movements and protests would spread all over Central Europe during the last year of the war, which would play a pretty big role in ending the war in November 1918. That's A story way for the future, though, but we'll get there eventually. And that's a pretty quick answer to the question about the home fronts. And again, just focusing on sort of one uh, aspect. However, you can expect a much deeper dive into the situation on the home fronts of all of the nations involved in the war early next year. There should be about four to five episodes looking at how the war was causing immense stress on every country from 1914 to the end of 1917. Uh, Those should be the mm, starting in about February next year, probably. So with that answer, we come to the end of episode 100. I would like to again thank everyone for listening. I can't thank you enough. And here's to 100 more.